Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and lyre. Praise him with tambourine and dancing. Praise him with the strings and pipe. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And our second reading is from 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 4 to verse 10, which can be found on page 1,218 of the Church Bibles. One Peter, chapter two, starting at verse four. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Well, please do turn back to page 634, Psalm 150. As Pete said, today we come to the end of our series on the Psalms. I'm quite sad about that. I've loved looking at the Psalms, but I hope the end of the series doesn't mean that we're finished with the Psalms and now we move on to another book of the Bible. We never finish with the Psalms. Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who set up the, the, the Book of Common Prayer, morning prayer, evening prayer, if you follow that, you'd go through all the Psalms every month. Well, I'm not necessarily suggesting that, but I hope very much you'll keep reading the Psalms individually, and we'll make sure as a church we're fed by the Psalms and use the Psalms not only to speak to us, but to speak for us. And today we come to the last Psalm, I sometimes teach people how to preach, and I'm encouraging them to look for the thrust of every passage. And that thrust, I suggest, should be the thrust of the sermon. And sometimes it's quite hard to spot the thrust. Shouldn't be difficult today. Look how Psalm 150 begins. Praise the Lord. And then at the end of verse 6, praise the Lord. And in case we missed it, once again, praise the Lord. Let me pray. 
Loving Father, so speak to us through your word that we would indeed long to praise you and that we would together praise you when we meet and when we scatter for the glory of your name. Amen. If you watch British TV, you'll very likely be familiar with Gareth Malone, the, the choir master, who's made his name over the last 15 years or so getting quite unlikely people together to form a choir. I think the first one was boys in a comprehensive school who'd never sung before, and he cajoled them and persuaded them, and at first they were very, very awkward, couldn't look at you, they're looking at their shoes, and then one by one, it seems, and together, they found a voice, and they sung. Then there were the military wives, husbands in Afghanistan, and they were recruited. They ended up as number one, one Christmas. It's a beautiful concept, isn't it? People who are a bit down in the dumps, facing difficult circumstances, finding a voice together. The most recent project was the Coronation Choir. People from around the country recruited and formed, and their great privilege was on the day after the coronation to sing before the King and Queen at Windsor. Well, that's a little bit like what's going on as we read and sing the Psalms. We've called this series Singing in the King's Choir. But just imagine if that coronation choir wasn't just singing for the king, but rather with the king. Just imagine if King Charles was going around recruiting people, will you join my choir? And then you find he's not sitting in the front row, he's conducting, indeed, he's the lead singer. And the lead singer of the Psalms is the king. And I hope, if nothing else, you've picked up as we looked at these Psalms, this is not just a random collection of individual songs. There's a theme here. There's a plot. Behind these Psalms is the big story of the whole Bible. It assumes a world in rebellion. You remember the enemies keep on appearing in the Psalms. There's a world against God. But God, we're told in Psalm 2, which is programmatic, for the rest of the Psalter, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. The king of David's line will be established as king of kings and lord of lords. And his reign will bring peace on earth and all will be well. And so when we read the rest of the Psalms, Christologically, we're looking for Christ as the New Testament does. We're not imposing a Christian meaning on the Psalms. That comes right from the beginning. And so often we find in the Psalter, the king is the chief singer. The first two books contain many Psalms of David. Many, of course, are sad songs, they're laments. Because here we have David, God's anointed king, and yet he's despised and rejected of men. And we find as Christians that they echo our hearts in this now and not yet time we live in, when Jesus has been anointed. He's even enthroned in heaven, but the world continues to reject him. But the general trajectory of the Psalms is to move from lament. They dominate the early Psalms, in certainly the first two books. We move more and more towards praise. Indeed, we've seen five books in the Psalms, and the last Psalm of each of those books is an exhortation to praise God. Because the whole of history, not just the Psalter, but the whole of history is heading towards a time when there's only praise. And at last, all will be well. 
And here we come to the finale of the Psalter. From Psalm 146 onwards, every psalm begins, praise the Lord, ends, praise the Lord. It's a chorus of praise, the great hallelujah chorus with which the Psalter ends. I, I kind of imagine that great moment at the end of a concert or end of a party and the fireworks are going everywhere. That's Psalm 150. It's the finale of the finale. In the midst of ongoing trials, I hope and pray we'll receive this exhortation to praise the Lord. Derek Kidner, in his lovely little commentary, divides this psalm up in terms of questions. Praise the Lord where? Why? How? Who? First of all, where? Verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise the Lord. Not just any old God, but the Lord. It's the name that God gave Moses when Moses met God of the burning bush and said, who, sh who shall I say has sent me to go to your people to redeem them? Well, which God are you? What's your name, God? And God says, I am who I am. That's the word here, the Lord, Yahweh, sometimes you'll find in some versions. This is the creator God, the covenant God who makes a promise to redeem his people and put the world right. This is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Worship, praise the Lord. Not just any old God. And not just any old way. We're to approach him as he directs. Praise God in his sanctuary. Literally, in his holy place. You may know that, that the Old Testament says how this God who made the heavens and the earth drew close to a people, the people of Israel. He called them to himself. And he dwelt amongst them, at first in a tabernacle that wandered around with them as they wandered. And then when they finally reached the promised land, a temple was built at the heart of Jerusalem. And that was God's dwelling place. It's referred to often in the Psalter. And God says, this is where you're to meet with me. In my place. On my terms. You can't just waltz into his presence with your hands in your pockets. Because God is a holy God and you're a sinful people. So you go to his place, but only through priests who've offered sacrifices. And then you can have the, the amazing joy of being in fellowship with the God who meets with you in his temple. We saw last week in those songs of ascents, the people of Israel heading towards Jerusalem. That's where the focus was. Festivals three times a year. And when they're in Babylon, looking in their hearts to Jerusalem, where the dwelling place of God was. The tragedy of the exile wasn't just they're away from home, they're away from God. And the prophets speak of a time when there'll be a new temple. And water from that temple will head to the ends of the earth and bring life everywhere. At last the people returned, and you may remember that these psalms reached this final form either towards the end of the exile, or more likely they were put in this form just after they'd returned home, and the little temple gets built again. It's not a bad-looking temple. It's nothing like Solomon's temple that the Babylonians had destroyed. And the prophets of God said, in effect, this little temple, this isn't the fulfillment. Now the Lord is still going to come and visit his people. The new temple is still to come. And then Jesus came. 
as John puts it, the word became flesh and dwelt, literally tabernacled among us. Jesus is the temple. And pointing to the temple in Jerusalem, he said, destroy this temple. Well, he wasn't actually pointing to that. He was just by it. But he said, destroy this temple and, and God will raise it in three days. And only later did they realize he was talking about himself. He would die and then he'd be raised. He is the place we meet with God. And he offers a sacrifice not of animals but of himself that we might with confidence come into God's presence. We can't begin to praise the Lord until we come to Christ. Once we come to Christ, we find we're in fellowship with one another as we read in that second reading from 1 Peter that we're like living, living stones and every individual who comes to Christ is one more stone added to the temple. Where's the temple? Where does God meet with his people? Where is God's dwelling place on earth? Don't go to Jerusalem. You won't find it there. It's wherever God's people meet. The church is the dwelling place of God and so appropriately, whenever we meet, of course, we praise the Lord. And every time we meet is a foretaste of the ultimate fulfillment of the sanctuary when we'll be in the very presence of God of the new creation. And in the new creation, Revelation 21, you could look anywhere, but you'll never find a temple. John tells us in Revelation 21, there's no temple there. Why? Because the whole place is a temple. We're in the dwelling place of God forever, praising him. Praise God in the sanctuary. Praise him in the mighty heavens. There's a, a word for the whole universe to join in as we meet God through Christ in his presence. Let's praise him. That's verse one. Where do we meet him? Second, verse two, why? Why do we praise the Lord? Praise him, verse two, for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. In other words, we praise him for his acts and his attributes, to use the jargon word. We praise him for what he's done and for who he is. One writer says, the Psalms encourage us to magnify God, not because we can make him bigger, but so that our view of him may be enlarged. Praise him for his acts of power. And two particular themes in the Psalms that are stressed again and again, his creation and his redemption. He's the maker of heaven and earth. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. And as we go around in the world, we should re remember this is God's world. Our eyes should be opened and our hearts expand with joy and praise. God made this. So we look at the night sky, the immensity of the universe. Wow! Praise the Lord. Maybe some of you go to the coast on holiday this summer and you see the awesome power of the sea, perhaps most expressly seen when there's a storm and you see, wow, God made this. Well, the stunning beauty of an English meadow on a summer's day. Wow, God made this. His acts of power, his creation and his redemption. In Old Testament times, looking back especially to the Exodus, where God remembered his covenant promises to his people. 
And even though they were enslaved by the greatest power in the world at the time, Pharaoh and the Egyptians, by his mighty power, he redeemed them, set them free. And that exodus points to the even greater exodus that Jesus Christ fulfilled. As he, the Passover lamb, died on a cross to redeem us from slavery, not just to some human power, to the forces of evil and wickedness and sin and death, and set us free. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness, his attributes. Yes, his power, his holiness, his justice, his love. That's perhaps the greatest theme of Psalm of book five. Book five begins, Psalm 107, verse one, give thanks for the Lord, for he is good, his love endures forever. Or Psalm 136, 26 verses, and each of them ends with the same words, his love endures forever. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. A time when the people of Judah felt oppressed, a tiny little nation, perhaps back home, but there's no king. They're surrounded by far greater powers. They feel crushed and insignificant. And they wonder if God will ever fulfill the promises that he performed. Well, the Bible reminds them, the Psalms remind them, he's powerful, but he's not only powerful, he's very loving. And he will do what he said he's done. He will do. His love endures forever. Once you think of a God like this, it is entirely natural for us to want to praise him. Praise is is an instinctive human response to something you admire. So a a new grandchild maybe, or or family member, little baby, and you, you want everyone to see, don't you? Doesn't she look amazing? Isn't he the most beautiful boy that's ever been born? Is to you. Or you hear a great song, And you want others to listen to it. I love this song. Listen to this. You're praising. It's just instinctive and natural. But you might say, but hang on. This praise is not just wait for it to bubble up. Here's a command to praise the Lord. Isn't that rather arrogant to demand praise? Well, it would be arrogant for anyone and anything else to expect praise from everyone and everything. As if... I'm the center of the universe, and I want everyone to acknowledge that fact. That would be very arrogant for me. And isn't that how many of us live? To some extent, it's how this present world encourages us to live. Look after number one. You've got to be your own PR agent. Advertise yourself to the world. Expect people to notice you and admire you. And the idea is that that's the way to feel totally fulfilled, is to find meaning in yourself. Blaze your own trail through life. It's pretty ugly when you think about it. It's unattractive. But more than that, ironically, even though we're promised this is the way to find fulfillment, it's unfulfilling. Self-fulfillment is an oxymoron. As someone said, a human being wrapped up in themselves makes a very small package. If we're wrapped up in ourselves, that diminishes us. It actually, more than that, dehumanizes us. Because we're not meant to be self-obsessed. We're meant to be God-obsessed. That's how we were made. Created in the image of God to reflect him. We're to reflect God's glory for God's glory. That's who we are. 
and who we're designed to be. Which means praise is natural in the most fundamental sense of the term. We're never more truly ourselves than when we praise him. Lost in wonder, love, and praise. That's when we're truly alive. When we worship anything else, well, they will crush us, those things. This is natural, but more than that, it's, you might say, political. It's polemical. Just remember the context in which these psalms were sung. In a world where people weren't praising God, surrounded by nations that worshipped other gods. And the Psalms say, praise the Lord. That's a political statement. One commentator describes the Psalms as dangerous poems, sung under enemy occupation. We're to sing to God and by implication against the gods against anyone or anything else that sets itself up as above God. Praise him, those, verse 2, for his surpassing greatness. He's greater than anyone and anything else. When we praise him, we're placing him high, we're putting others comparatively low. That's a political thing to do. It's a defiant thing to do. Many of you will know the name Vaclav Havel. Poet and playwright during the Cold War era in Czechoslovakia, and then, as a dissident, after the collapse of the communist regime, he became the president of the Czech Republic. He was asked later, how did that old regime that had been, it seemed so strong for so long, how did it collapse so quickly without almost any resistance? He replied, we had our parallel society. And in that parallel society, we wrote our plays, we sang our songs, we read our poems, until we knew that truth so well that we could go out onto the streets of Prague and say, we don't believe your, your lies anymore. See, the poems, the plays, the songs got under, the, sting, under the, the skin. And so although they were hearing this propaganda, these songs from the people who were in control, they didn't really believe it because another song had got into their hearts. It's an encouragement. A Christian engagement in the arts, by the way, in the media. It doesn't have to be overt preaching, just a reminder of true truth in the midst of a world that sings and celebrates lies. Maybe you remember when we began this series, I put up a clip from the, the film Casablanca. And as there were songs sung by the occupying forces, the powers that be at the time, the Marseillaise began to play. And there was a defiance. And we need to hear that other song and join the other song. Where? Well, in his sanctuary. Why? For his acts of power, for his surpassing greatness. Third, how? Verses 3 to 5. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and lyre. Praise him with tambourine and dancing. Praise him with the strings and the pipe. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Seven instruments mentioned. And I take it he's not saying that somehow we're failing him, uh, failing the, the, the psalmist and we're disobeying it if we don't have all seven represented. Those seven, seven is the, is the number of totality and completion and perfection. I reckon they represent all 
the different instruments you could imagine. The voice, of course, is the chief instrument. And there's great exhortation in the Psalms, not least towards the end, to sing. 147 verse 1, praise the Lord, how good it is to sing praises to our God. 149 verse 1, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the people. Music, singing, is very powerful. Albus Dumbledore, in one of the Harry Potter books, said this, I gather, ah, music, a magic beyond all we do here. And there's a power in music. It expresses, evokes, enhances emotion. So when you're happy, it's just natural to sing. Manchester City supporters sang when they won the triple. Of course they did. And when we're sad, very often we want to listen to music that reflects our mood. And here there's an exhortation to exuberant, extravagant joy. I think of what we used to do, I think, I don't know whether COVID stopped it, I don't know, but uh, we used to give to the children from a box instruments and they'd come and all pick up an instrument and during the first couple of songs they'd be banging on their drums, playing with a tambourine, exuberant, not self-conscious, were they? And I still remember there was one period when a little group of children would come to the front and they'd dance. Not self-conscious. Exuberant. Joy. What is it that happens to adults? Some of it's a good thing because there are times when me being exuberant could be a bit of a pain for you as my arms go everywhere and in your face. Not always nice, but I wonder whether there's... Well, I'm absolutely sure there's something bad in losing some of that uninhibited joy and excessive self-consciousness kicks in and, and we turn things off and maybe some of that is an understandable reaction we fear emotionalism because music is very powerful and it can manipulate we think perhaps of those who equate an encounter with God with a feeling what a friend of mine calls the liver shiver and with the right kind of technique you can, you can manufacture that liver shiver and if you're not careful people are looking for that feeling but have they really engaged with God maybe not or perhaps we fear hypocrisy and we recognize the Bible says doesn't matter what you're doing outwardly it's the heart that matters most of all and maybe we're worried and it's a good worry that we could be exuding joy outwardly but actually in our hearts there's a coldness to God and we go out of here and we don't live for him Worship and praise is to be seen not just as we sing, but as we live. But surely one of the purposes of music is as we express truths with music, rather than just speak them, God willing those truths go down from our heads into our hearts, we feel them. And then it's only natural that we'll express them with joy in our tongues, and there's an absolute integration of heart, head, heart, tongues, and bodies. So as you look at the Psalms, there's an exhortation to clap your hands. Or, verse 4, praise him with tambourine and dancing. Now, of course, different cultures and different individuals express this kind of exuberant joy in different ways. So I don't want any of us to, to put ourselves on a guilt trip and say, well, you should be doing it like that. 
But is there something, maybe in ourselves individually, or in our culture, could be nationally, or in our culture, in our church, that's unnaturally suppressing the joy and the appropriate expression of that joy. I would hate it if there was anyone here who felt, oh, I, I want to lift my hands in praise, but oh, that could be frowned on because they might think it's a bit showy, a bit over-emotional. I don't want anyone to feel that they've got to, as we're looking around at each other, say, come on, lift your hands up. But let's face it, that's not the pressure. We might find that pressure in other churches, and if you don't want to lift your hands, well, that's fine. Do what's natural to you. But I'd hate if the other pressure came, somehow I shouldn't look as if I'm happy when I'm singing, because people might think I'm overly emotional. Bob Coughlin, who wrote the song that we've just sung, actually, came to one of our staff meetings, and uh, he said afterwards, I know from the way you sang that song that there was joy in your hearts, but from looking at you, you seem to be determined to give me no indication that that was the reality. <laughs> and that's a bit odd, isn't it? We might say, well, that's, that's, it's not a cultural, it, it's a cultural thing, is it? Have you seen British people at a football match? <laughs> Come on, Arsenal. Come on, Arsenal. Come on, Arsenal. Um, no. No embarrassment there. No, I, I find it hard. I think there's something in British culture that I find it hard to... So I, I don't want to put pressure on anyone. But at the same time, I hope you're not feeling the pressure not to. It's okay to enjoy praising God. And what an encouragement it is when we see one another praising God. I think of dear Harold Puttock, who for decades, must have been six decades, would play the violin here. He was still playing in his late 80s. And there was always a seraphic smile on his face. He was praising the Lord. And that encouraged me. I used to like it when we looked that way. Because it, it, it meant we were, as it were, more in a circle, and we could see one another, and the, the best way of fitting people in is, is many of you to be in serried ranks, but it means we can't see each other, because actually we're not just singing to the Lord, as if he lives over there, but you know what I mean, but we're exhorting one another to praise the Lord when I see you, and especially when I know some of the challenges in your life. I think one other lady used to sing when we had a little choir just over there, and I knew that she struggled with depression for decades, but to see her singing with joy in our heart was a huge encouragement to me. Where? Well, in the sanctuary above all, all else, in Christ and with one another. Why? He's so great. How? With exuberant joy, surely. And then finally, who? Who should praise the Lord? It's there in verse 6. Let everything that has breath Praise the Lord, everyone and everything. So let me ask you, have you joined the choir? And as you wander around and, and, and look at creation, is there anyone you thank? Because you could. There's a creator. Will you join in the choir and praise him? And above all, join us in praising the Redeemer. Despite the way we live in God's world, we've dismissed him. He came close in Christ, who lived a perfect, praise-filled life.
of trust and worship his heavenly father. He took upon himself the penalty for our lack of praise, our lack of worship, the way in which we want the world to revolve around us. And through his death, we've been forgiven. Will you join the choir? It's God's design that every part of God's creation will join together in the chorus of praise. Striking these, these last Psalms, Psalm 146, praise the Lord my soul. He's talking to himself. Come on, soul, praise God. And sometimes we need to take ourselves in hand. Life's tough. And the Psalms never encourage us to deny that life is tough. But sometimes we just need to keep praising God. It may be with gritted teeth. But keep praising him. He is good. He is loving. All will be well. But then Psalm 147 addresses God's people. Verse 12, extol the Lord Jerusalem. Come on, Israel. Come on, church. Praise him. My soul, God's people. Psalm 148 goes up a gear even further. Join in, verse 2, the angels. Join in, sun and moon, verse 3. Verse 7, come on, you great sea creatures, join the choir, you wild animals and cattle and kings of the earth and all nations. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. That's how the whole of creation was designed. With human beings ruling the creation under God as the great conductor. And as we rule the world under him, then every part of creation is in harmony producing praise and glory to the great creator. But then we human beings thought it would be much more fulfilling if we played our own tune. And so there's a cacophony of sound. Instead of together praising God and singing his song, we're singing our own little songs. And so we're all playing very different notes. It's discordant, and that has an effect on the whole created order. It's not as it should be. But then Jesus Christ came, the perfect God-man. And as he represented us, he died, he rose, he ascended. He is now the conductor. And he's recruiting for the choir. And one day, all those who continue to reject him, well, they'll not be in the new creation. And then in the age to come, They'll just be those who are singing glory to him. And the whole creation will join in the harmony. You shall go out with joy and be led forth in peace, says the prophet Isaiah, that the mountains and the hills will burst into song before you, that all the trees of the field will clap their hands. That's where the world is heading. Eternal praise. In the meantime... Can we hear the song? Let's join in and keep singing praise as we wait for that glorious day. Let me pray. Knowing, Father, it's only by your spirit that we can join this choir. It's only by your spirit that we can express praise as we should. So help us to do so, not just individually, but together for your glory as we wait for that glorious day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.